the front foot of how Christianity works or how the kingdom of God comes, uh, both in our lives individually how the kingdom of God takes up more ground in our own hearts, and collectively, how God is bringing about his big, holistic mission on this earth. The front foot of that is very much focused on communication, on the word of God. He brought me hot water. Uh, On communication of the word of God or the proclamation of the gospel, I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but it's, it's an odd thing. Think of it with me this way. How is it that God is going to change you? How is it that God is going to change the world? What is his primary tool for transformation? What is going to bring about the full-on justice and peace flowing like rivers, righteousness, kingdom, kingdom of God? It's the word. It's the communication of particular truths. It's the proclamation of what God has accomplished in Jesus Christ. Christianity is communicated verbally. Transformation comes as we hear and respond to, receive and are changed by a message. That's God's great method. (coughs) Where we are in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has shifted his ministry to communicate through parables. And a parable just means that you take a story or an illustration and you lay it alongside to help people understand a spiritual truth. Now at the same time, we've been learning here that Jesus also used these parables to veil his teaching. Remember, Jesus is becoming controversial at this point. The leaders of Israel are starting to uh, plot his death. And so instead of outright and upfront stating baldly the truths of who he is and what he's come to do, he begins to tell simple stories. Stories that require you to think and to process, that require you to want to know what they mean. Or they just go right over your head. But what's interesting about this collection of parables is that they all focus on this idea of the word. They all focus on the relationship between the proclamation of God and the coming of the kingdom. And so the chapter opens with Jesus telling the keystone parable, the one that he says, if you don't understand, you don't understand at all. And it has to do with a sower who goes out and sows, and he throws his seed on all different types of soil. And because of the type of soil, different consequence happens, okay? And so on the good soil, plants grow up, they bear fruit. But on the hard soil, the seeds don't even get into the ground. They never germinate. In weedy soil, the plants get choked out. And in rocky soil, there's too much shallowness. And so in hot weather, they dry up and burn away. In the same way, this morning, we're going to look at more gardening stories. But they focus on this idea of the seed, of the word. And what I want you to notice as we read this morning uh, is that Jesus recognizes and even says that it's by design that the word works mysteriously. The way God has chosen to bring about his will on earth. Remember Jesus' 
uh, prayer that he teaches his disciples, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here, <coughs> Jesus is going to say the way that that comes about both involves the seed, planting, the word, proclamation, communication, and that that's surprising, that it's mysterious, that it's unseen, that it's a little bit odd. So why don't you read with me this morning, picking up in verse 26. Jesus speaking, and he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it's sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Let's pray. Father, this parable is given so that we would understand, so that we would know the way uh, your kingdom comes and that we would press into it, that we would lean into it, as contemptible as it may seem, as mysterious or unlikely as it may seem, Lord, this is the way that you work. This is your chosen method, both of our transformation and the world's as well. So I pray, God, that we would be able to respond to your plan with faith and see a great harvest in our own hearts, in our city, and in our world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jesus gives two parables here, and they have a lot in common. In fact, as I mentioned, when we add it to the parable of the sower that begins this chapter, they're very similar. The first one involves a sower going out to sow, and then a harvest. The second one we see here involves a farmer, and he sows, and there's a harvest. And the third one involves a mustard seed, and it's planted, and it grows into a large plant. Um, one of the first things we should notice here is uh, that the parable, the picture, um, the frame of reference that Jesus uses here for the work that he's doing involves planting. I mean, it's, it's obvious, it runs through the whole thing. And it's worth asking the question, why? It's worth saying, well, couldn't he have chosen a different metaphor? Couldn't he have used a picture? Why does he want this one? And side note, it is a favorite of Jesus's. In fact, identifying his own mission while he's on earth, he uses a similar picture. He's been telling his disciples in the Gospel of John many, many times that he's come to earth to die. That that's where everything is headed. He's walking towards Jerusalem, and when he gets there, he's going to be betrayed. He's going to be handed over the Romans. He's going to be crucified, and on the third day, rise again. 
There is no greater mystery to Jesus' ministry that his disciples can't wrap their head around. And on one occasion, he explains it once again with a seed metaphor, and he says, unless a seed dies and falls to the ground, it does not bear fruit. You see, he looks at himself and he says, this death, burial, and resurrection, it's been repeated millions and billions of time on earth. Every spring, summer, and fall, death leads to life. The death of one to the life of many. Okay? A single seed falls, dies, is buried, and produces abundant fruit and harvest. <clears throat> but what I think is really striking about this is that Jesus draws his illustration from the lowest level of society. He draws his illustration from something uh, that is, if not contemptible, at the very least, basic and common. And as we'll see, there's a significance in that. The second thing that I want to point out is not only does he take a common uh, illustration for how the kingdom of God works, but it's one that involves organic life. There's a naturalness to a seed germinating and becoming a sprout and then growing into a plant. It's organic in its growth. It involves life. Although there are other occasions where the Bible looks at us as a community gathered around Jesus, the church, and uses a building metaphor. We are the temple and each living stones. Okay. Notice that when Peter uses that metaphor, he has to add that word living. There's something about even that metaphor that falls short without this idea of life. When Jesus talks about how we accomplish his will in life, he says, apart from him, we can do nothing. He says, I am the vine. You are the branches. When the branches and the vine are connected, the branches bear fruit. But when the branches are disconnected from the vine, no fruit. Right? Always these organic life illustrations here. Notice, and I know this is a little bit asynchronous, by which I mean uh, <coughs> it doesn't make sense that Jesus would use such a metaphor, but notice he doesn't use a factory. This isn't a manufactured thing. In fact, what he wants to explain here, the first thing we need to understand um, is that there is a part of the work of God on earth, once again, in your hearts and in our community and the world at large, <coughs> that we can't do and that we don't really understand. Look again at that first parable, 26. The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. The seed sprouts and grow. He grows. He knows not how. Now, recognize here that that's kind of an oversimplification. Okay. You're a bad farmer, are you not, if all you do is just throw seeds and then wait three months. Right? There's other things to be done. There's tilling of the ground. There's the watering of the soil. There's fertilization. Uh, you know, there, uh, there's all sorts of things that a good farmer does to increase the likelihood of a good yield. It may be even that Jesus intentionally leaves those things out because he knows them. Even in the parable of the sower, the quality of the ground is, is an emphasis that he makes. Okay? Uh, Paul, when he picks up on this metaphor in 1 Corinthians, says, Some sow, others water, but God gives the increase. But Jesus intentionally limits us here to get to um, the active ingredient of farming. Okay. 
Forget the seed. Remove it. Water the ground all you want. Fertilize it all you want. Do all the work. Break your back in sweating labor. What do you have at the end of a season? Nothing. The seed is where the life is. The seed is the active ingredient, and without it, nothing is accomplished. In fact, a seed is so powerful in and of itself, how often does one germinate and grow without human intervention at all? I'm going to assume the majority of the time, right? As big as we can make a farm, think of the forests of our world. Think of the rainforests of our world. Think of all of the history where land was untouched by human hands and this process went through over and over again. You see, what God suggests here is counterintuitive to humans, especially humans like us who live in the cities, who are constantly surrounded by the work of our own hands, who look at a high-rise and say, that is our accomplishment, who look at transit and all of these things, who see cement for miles, right, and are so easily removed from these things that are mysterious, these things that provoke awe, these works of God that are undeniable. Consider light pollution, right? When was the last time you saw the stars in all their majesty? It was probably a documentary on Netflix, right? We can't see those things here. We're blinded to them. But notice what he says here. Remember here, the seed is the word. What Jesus is saying is that even, and this is happening right now, even as the word, the Bible, God's word, the proclamation about who Jesus is and what he's accomplished, even as it goes out, it's as if seed are being sown. And what happens next is surprising. That's where change comes from. That's where transformation comes from. It's something about the hearing, the receiving, and the believing of the word of God that makes Christians more Christ-like, that makes those who do not yet believe in Christ become Christians and step across that threshold that the Bible makes very significant. This is the way it describes the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. Darkness and light. Death and life. What does that? The Word of God. See, The thing we need to understand here, first and foremost, is that the method that God has called us to use in transformation for ourselves and for our world is just simply sowing seeds, proclaiming the gospel, speaking forth the word of God, reading it for ourselves and for other people. That is the sowing of the seed. And let's just be honest. A lot of times, that doesn't seem like enough. Now, I want to be careful and I want to be clear here. Because of the way the word works and the fact that it bears fruit in our lives, the church does stuff. And we should be doing stuff. One of the things the word calls us to do is love our neighbors. And so if it's taking root in our hearts, we will be doing stuff. We will be feeding the hungry. We will be seeking a better community in our city. We will seek to serve our neighborhood and seek their best. All of those things are true. But strip out the word. It's just watering soil with no seed. 
This is where the double down is, okay? You can study different ways of understanding who you are through personality. You can employ self-control uh, and work on yourself, whatever that means. You can go to yoga. You can do all of these things. All of them can be good. All of them can be helpful. None of them will bring about the kingdom of God in your life. Only this mysterious process of hearing the word and being transformed by it. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Now, so the first thing I want you to notice is the part that we can't do. Notice the inability of this farmer. But the second thing I want you to notice is that it takes time. In our instant culture, farming is something we just don't really think about. If you want to try a new food, you go to the grocery store and you benefit from somebody else's labor. Right? Food is so (coughs) readily available to us, we don't always think about the process that it takes. The process from seed to fruit is seasons. It's annual. It takes time. And it's at the very beginning, not very visible, and throughout all the course of it, not ready till it's ready. Right? Imagine this farmer. He goes out. He sows the seed. He goes to bed. Why? Well, let's be clear about a few things. One, it's not because he doesn't care about the outcome. Okay. This is not, uh, <clears throat> not a sleep that comes from a lack of concern, a lack of care. He has a vested interest in the outcome of that seed to fruit process. And that's important for us. The idea here is not some sort of scattershot, finish our responsibility, proclaim the word of God, and then go away because we don't care about the outcome. Okay. But it's also not a sleep that comes from some sort of despair. Remember, this is a sower. This is a farmer. There's, there's mystery in the process, but he knows the outcome. It's not that, man, I waited all day and nothing happened. So he just goes to sleep and gives up. No, this is different. This is, <coughs> this is a rest of both dependence, right? The part that needs to be done right now, the actual growing of the seed he can do nothing about, and of expectancy. He goes to bed because not only can nothing else be done, but he expects the work to happen. Okay. Now, let me make this practical for for us. First, in your own life. If you've been a Christian for a while, there are probably areas in your life where you find yourself to be frustrated. Places where, like we talked about this morning in the catechism, where you know the law of God and you feel that disparity between who God is and who you are. And that drives you to Christ and you cry out for forgiveness and it's readily granted. Like 1 John tells us, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But that last gap Nick talked about, the gap in our character that Jesus is closing by his work, making us more and more conformed to his image, that feels sometimes like a completely lost battle. 
stuck. It's part of the process. The seed has been sown. And now comes the waiting. And again, it's not a waiting of despair. It's not an inactive waiting. It's an active waiting on the Lord, one of both dependence and expectancy. One that asks God to do what only he can do. If you were a Christian farmer, you spend this time, the waiting time, in prayer. The Bible is full of Israel asking God to bring about abundance in their crops. That's right and proper, and it's the same in our lives. There is a waiting. There's time, uh, and we can forget that. We can feel stuck like nothing works. We can despair and feel like we're always going to deal with this. We're always going to be this person. We're always going to continue with this. And sometimes we even get to the point of Paul. In Romans chapter 7, he says this. He says, the things that I do, those are the things I don't want to do. And the things that I don't do, those are the things that I want to do. Woe is me. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Stuck. He just wants to get to the end, to the finish line. He wants to just give up. He says in 2 Corinthians, speaking of a hard time in his life, we came to a point where we despaired of even life itself. but that's part of the process. It's the same with communicating the word of God to those around us. The Bible calls all Christians, not just pastors, not just missionaries, but all Christians to be witnesses, to be proclaimers of the word of God, to say Christ has died, was buried, and has risen, and he did that for you, and he's freely offering you salvation. Will you receive it? That is a calling we all have, but sometimes it seems fruitless. I imagine all of us can think of people in our lives where there's been a long duration of opportunity and no reception. We can think of people in our lives who have sat in this church or in other churches with us and heard and heard and not responded. We can think of people that we've been like that farmer in the long nights praying for regularly and consistently and nothing. Listen, let me tell you from my own life, I grew up surrounded by the word of God. I grew up in a big Baptist church. My parents became Christians when I was in preschool. So I grew up doing Awana and memorizing parts of the Bible. But I didn't become a Christian until I was a senior in high school. The word didn't come to fruit. The harvest didn't come for years and years God's okay with that process. It's part and parcel with his plan. It's the way things work. Here's a verse that I find helpful in general for both of these ideas. God's work in our own lives. God's work in the lives of our neighbors. In Galatians, Paul says this. Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, if we do not give up hope, it will bear fruit. You see what Paul is saying there? Just like Jesus here, he's saying there's time, there's seasons, there's a whole period where it looks like nothing and then suddenly there's just a little sprout. The prophets say of Jesus' ministry, he picks up on it, Uh, Isaiah says this and he quotes it for himself, he says, my ministry 
is not to squash the broken reed and not to put out the smoking flax. Just a little spark. Jesus doesn't despise. Just, just a plant that you don't know if it's going to make it through the winter. Jesus is vested and continues to care for. But that's where it starts. And that's the second thing we need to notice. Look at what it says in verse uh, 28. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. Here's another principle about farming, how seeds work. They don't just stay underground and then all in one day, boom, it's over, right? It's not just from invisible to visible. It's not from seed to fruit, but as it puts it here, first there's the sprout and then there's the leaves and then there's the bud and the flower and then finally there's the fruit. I think one of the biggest challenges we have in our lives is the inability to see the little things, the evidences of life. We long for the fruit so much that we can't see the sprout. But Jesus reminds us here that that's how the process works. And you know what the sprout is? It's a testimony of a coming harvest. It's evidence of things unseen. It's proof that God is at work. And even, <coughs> even as we see that minor growth, we can chart a trajectory of faith saying this is where God is taking us. This is what God is doing. Will you do that with me this morning? Will you take those areas where you're despairing, where you feel like you're so much of a work in progress that there's no progress at all? Will you look at where you were and where you are? Can you look back on what God has done in your life and say, maybe the harvest isn't here yet, but there's leaves on this plant? I'm embarrassed, embarrassed to utilize this, but there was a Christian ska band in the 90s <laughs> who will remain unnamed. But there's a chorus that's always stuck with me in one of their songs that says, who I am is in between what I want to be and what I am. We are sinners being saved. You have to have that being, that present tense and active reality stated. That's where we are. That's where we live. The word is fruitful. It's doing stuff. It's pro productive. It's bringing about a harvest. Now, why is this the case? Because the word tells us who God is and gives the opportunity for faith. That's what we're talking about this morning. That's how this works. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And that faith, <coughs> that belief that says, this is who you are, Lord, and then lives that way. That's how this productivity works. That's how this process goes. Okay? But faith has to do with the things that are unseen. Faith has to do with taking the truth of God as truth despite any evidence to the consequence, despite feelings, despite circumstances. Okay. God says, Abraham, I've got a promise for you. I'm going to give you many descendants, but you need to come to a land that I will show you. And Abraham goes, that land being unseen, his wife being barren, that's faith. That's the way it works. It's not too incomparable to a farmer who sows seed, trusting that the seed will grow. 
And you go, yeah, but that's different because that's what seeds do. This is who God is. And there's been so many harvests in your lives and the lives of other people and the um, <coughs> people that God has transformed in the Bible. Evidence of the way seeds work. That's how faith functions. Second parable is a little bit different. Verse 30, he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. To make a gram, you need thousands of mustard seeds. It's pretty small. We know of smaller mustard seeds now, but he's speaking to an audience in their garden. A mustard seed is noticeably smaller than anything else they're planting. It's no acorn. But the strange thing is, for just an herb, mustard grows into a bush sometimes 10, 12 feet high. How can that be? You know, we expect, with mammals, for example, there to be a correlation between the size of the adult and the size of the baby. Right? We can't, I can't think of any comparison. You know, a, a whale, a baby whale, way bigger, way bigger than a baby mollusk, right? There's a correlation there. But mustard, the way that it grows, it doesn't really make any sense. You look at the seed and it's, you know, it's almost microscopic. What Jesus is talking about here is that the way things look compared to the way things will be doesn't make sense. There's a contemptibleness, just a mustard seed. Just the smallest of seeds. Okay. Think of an oak tree. When you look at that seed, when you look at an acorn, it's pretty big. But a mustard seed. Here he says, <clears throat> when it's sown on the ground, it's the smallest seed on the earth. Verse 32, yet when it's sown, it grows up and becomes large, larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Okay, at the end there, he spoils the illustration. Bushes don't have branches, right? Nor do you generally see in any given shrub a whole bunch of birds making nests, right? He's talking about a mustard seed that grows into a tree. And the reason he's doing this is because he's drawing from imagery specifically in Ezekiel and a few of the other prophets about the kingdom of God, where God talks about this process from the stump of broken Israel is going to grow up a tree so large that all the animals of the earth will gather under it for shade and all of the birds will nest in its branches. What Jesus is saying is the juxtaposition between the beginning and the end of the kingdom of God is profound. And we can see this even in where it begins. Jesus takes 12 backwoods, unknown, unseen, unskilled men. That's where the kingdom starts. And you see this growth suddenly and rapidly in, in the book of Acts, right? And so by the time Jesus leaves, at most, there are 500. More likely, there's 120 gathered in a prayer meeting waiting for the promise that Jesus has given. And the Spirit comes upon the church and they step out into Jerusalem that the streets are full with Jews in town for Pentecost. 
The streets are full, shoulder to shoulder with people, and they begin to proclaim the word. They begin to sow the seed, and 3,000 become Christians on that day. And a few days later, they do it again, and another 5,000 are added to the church. And then we watch as it explodes across the known world. In fact, within just a couple of centuries, Christianity literally changes the Western world. We're sitting in the branches of a Christian foundation today that began right here with just Jesus and 12 Jewish men. There's also a version of this that it follows this process in the small over and over again. Anytime God moves, anytime God works, it begins with a small group. And then it grows into something else. But the biggest way he's talking about is at any given time, the kingdom of God is somewhat invisible. It's somewhat contemptible. It seems like small potatoes. It couldn't possibly work. But when Jesus returns, and when the kingdom comes in all of its fullness, it'll be the biggest and greatest and most profound reality that has ever existed. And we go, how can that be? We expect if Jesus is going to bring about his kingdom to do it in ways that we understand with fanfare, with neon lights, with loud speaker systems, with uh, glory and pomp and circumstance and all of the things <laughs> that show us a king. And Jesus becomes a poor man. And Christianity works on the margins of society. And the church is you know, regularly shoved out of the center of cultural formation. It's contemptible and despised. And Jesus is okay with that. In fact, this is the way that he's chosen to work. It's such a small seed, just a mustard seed. The second thing I want you to notice here is the inevitability of that. If you sow a mustard seed, you get a mustard plant. It's not like some form of gambling where all of them are going to be, you know, small little herbs and then, wow, look at how this one turned out. No, there's a range of impact. There's a range of consequence that we expect. There's an expectancy. Listen to what the book of Revelation says. This is where things are headed. Revelation 7, verse 9, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and where have they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they're before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, 
neither thirst no more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat for the lamb is in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You know what that is? It's utter and total victory. Every one of your struggles over. The world with all of its problems dealt with, renewed, recreated. The plan of God in Jesus Christ is cosmic in its level. Read Colossians. Read Romans chapter 8. God is doing a big thing, but it finishes with a big bang. It climaxes in a surprising and unexpected way. If you read before chapter 7 in the book of Revelation, things are looking pretty dire. Things are looking pretty dark. It looks like Christianity itself and all humanity right behind it is going to be stomped off the earth. But here's the thing. We should be hopeful as Christians. Hopeful in our own lives that God is going to continue to work and not abandon us. That God is going to bring about and complete what he started in us, like Philippians says. Hopeful in the lives of others that there is no one impossible, no one disqualified from being transformed by the word of God, transformed by the gospel that goes forth. No one unreachable by the grace of God. And that the world is not too far gone. That the human history is a comedy and not a tragedy. We should have hope. And here's the reason. Because just a few chapters after this, within just a few years of Jesus giving this illustration and giving this parable, Jesus, God in the flesh, is going to be betrayed, handed over to the Romans, spit on, despised, tortured, and killed. And he's going to lay in the ground and it's going to look like all hope has perished with him and three days later he is going to rise again and live forevermore, conquering death and sin itself. That victory is past tense grounds for future hope. It's evidence of what God will do I want to finish here by looking at the closing words of this passage in verse 33. <coughs> With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. Again, notice the emphasis on, on the effect of that word of God, of the seed bearing fruit, is the receptivity of those who hear. What type of soil is your heart? That's the question we asked a few weeks ago. Is it prepared to hear? Is it longing to hear? Is it looking to hear? Do you really want to know who God is? Come what may. Whatever the consequences, will you respond to the truth? What is the orientation of your heart? He says, <clears throat> he spoke to them as they were able to hear it. And then verse 34, he did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. I want you to notice there that that identifies Jesus as the focal point of all truth the place where we get understanding when we don't have it. Okay. What is personified here is those who, unlike the crowds who hear, those who follow up, 
who sit at the feet of Jesus and say, teach me, instruct me. And if you're not a Christian this morning, this is my exhortation to you. This is my encouragement. This is my greatest desire for you. Not that you would find the answers in your own strength, not that you would figure things out, not that you would be confident that you would already know, but that you would be driven to the dependency on the one who came as the very light of God, and that you would ask. One of the things that Jesus' coming demonstrates is that God desires for you to know him. He's not hiding. In fact, the Bible declares God is not the one who's running, nor is he the one who's lost. We are. And so my exhortation to you is to follow the path of the disciples here who takes these truths and goes, <clears throat> I can't wrap my head around it. Who takes these things and says, if you really are who you say you are, if these things are really true, then teach me, instruct me. That's what we mean when we say disciples. It's those who have allowed Jesus to be Lord, to define reality with the truth that he makes known and subject ourselves to it. But I want to encourage you again that wherever you're at, the, the truth is you're sowing stuff, stuff in your life right now. We all are. And it's all bringing about fruit. It's all doing stuff. The life you have now is the life you made with past decisions and past truths or past lies and how you built on them. But it's not too late for a good harvest. And you might look at the mess that you've made and gone, it's too far, it's too much, it's too far gone. Don't underestimate the power of God as proclaimed through his word. It looks like such a little thing. Just casting seeds. It doesn't seem to show anything. It doesn't manifest anything, but it brings about in due season a harvest of transformation. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, there's a mystery in this, but there's also a clear continuity with who you are. Your word tells us truth. And when we live out that truth through faith, believing that you are who you are, that you did what you said you did, and that you will do what you say you will do, then that does change us. It aligns our hearts with your will. It gives you a fertile soil to grow in. It allows God to be God and we to be his created children. And I just pray against any discouragement or despair, Lord, that sees what looks like a barren field or small beginnings. I pray, Lord, that you'd teach us to see with dependency and expectation that we would do what Paul does in Philippians when he says, this one thing I do, forgetting the things that are behind, I press forward in the upward call of Christ Jesus. Let us continue to invest in our hearts with your word, to sow the seed, to hear the truth as spoken by those you've put around us in your body, to open the Bible and read it, to encounter reality, to better know you and through knowing you better know ourselves and surrender ourselves to become more like you. And we pray also for the mission that you've called us into, to be witnesses, 
proclaimers of that word. And I pray, Lord, that we would not be afraid to share the truth and we would not be discouraged whether it seems fruitful or not, but we would entrust that work to you. You have called us to sow, but you have promised to do the work of bringing life. I pray, Lord, that that would be manifest in both expectancy and dependency in our lives. And as we respond this morning, God, I pray that we would respond by letting the word sink in, that we would realign ourselves with even these truths this morning, that you have given us the active ingredient of growth and transformation. And that if we do not grow weary and do not grow up, uh, give up, it will bear fruit in our lives. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for your word. And thank you for what you've done in Jesus Christ. Dying the death that we deserve. Living the life that we could not live. And then freely offering us that self-same life. Transforming us into his image. Do that work in us. Again and afresh in Jesus' name. Amen.